Hey everybody. Hey Wendy. Welcome. Welcome to another episode. <laughs> I'm sure that's how right. NSYNC got started too. Yeah. Awesome. That was fun. <laughs> so I'm Jonathan. I'm Will. Welcome. Yeah. We we were formerly the co-host of the Adventure and DevOps show, but that may be coming to an end here in the near future based on the start of this episode. <laughs> if so, it's been nice knowing you. Yeah. See you on the other side, guys. So we're going to talk about user management, I think. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. User management from the perspective of like, how do you control who has access? You know, we initially started before we started recording talking about access to AWS, but it extends a lot further than that. Like who has access to your GitHub repos and like your Cloudflare account and other cloud providers and SaaS services. And this came up recently for me because I'm going through this process of backfilling and changing how we grant and audit access to our accounts. And so I personally am putting it into Terraform because Terraform has great support for AWS, but they also have support for things like GitHub and Cloudflare and several other providers and organizing it in a way so that each user in our organization has a Terraform file and that Terraform file states what accounts they have, what groups they're a member of, and then the groups define what permissions they have in there, which gives you an, a way to audit who has access at any given time. And then through your Git history, be able to identify changes to the permissions that that person has. But yeah, it kind of brought up a lot larger question of how do you manage users. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing through m- most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. Yeah, it's a, it's an important question, and it's not an easy one to answer because there's there's a lot of pieces that go into it, right? I mean, it, it's not just a matter of like, oh, how do we store passwords or how do we generate passwords or whatever. There's a lot more that goes into it. So you you're using Terraform with AWS, which I'm sure you could also do with Azure or Google Cloud or, or DigitalOcean or whatever other cloud provider you might be using. Right. I have I have experience. So something I, I haven't done that per se at that level. The The company I'm working with right now, we may be doing that. I know that we're using Terraform for a lot of stuff and we're, we're not done yet implementing Terraform. So I don't know if that's been accomplished yet or not. But it's kind of a no-brainer to me that that should be done that way. So I guess you don't have to convince me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But where I've done something similar in the past is at a company a few years ago, we were using our own self-hosted GitLab instance. And we did essentially the same thing for our users there, our users and groups and and permissions there. So, you know, GitLab gives you a pretty extensive, just just the same as GitHub, you have a, a lot of permissions you can set. You can go in and give read or write permission or whatever to particular users. You can put users in groups and those groups can be member, can have repositories within them and so on. 
Uh, GitLab has a little bit different model than GitHub, but it, it's similar in concept, of course. But it's it's a lot of manual toil to go in and, and change that, and especially you know, so onboarding or offboarding, or somebody changes teams, which is sort of a mix of on and offboarding at the same time. These are all annoying and and almost impossible if, if you have a large organization. Almost impossible to do it correctly. I mean, if you have a thousand people in your in your company, and and Bob leaves, and he was say in accounting. Uh, but before that, he was in marketing. Before that, he was in sales or whatever. You have to go back through at every place where he might have had permissions and remove that. And that's a huge pain in the butt. Or, so the way we did this with, with GitLab is we had a, one of our repos was like the GitLab configuration repo. And it had a, a, a CI script that ran every hour. I think it was every hour to, to just whatever. You just set everything every hour. So you could go into the interface and change your permissions or, or, or add Bob to your group. But top of the next hour, it goes back to whatever's in that repo. So if Bob wasn't in that repo, he's not in your group anymore. <laughs> Which is great if you're if you're in a help desk role and your you your performance is based on the number of tickets you close. I mean, you can just work that system all day long. <laughs> <laughs> the limiting yeah. factor there is how many times is Bob willing to open a ticket before he's like, "Dude, what is up?" <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, that that was really great. And then and then when it's time to onboard, you just go to that that repo and you add the person to the group they belong in or whatever. When it's time to offboard, it's it's even simpler. You just look for Bob and delete him, and right. it's all in one place. It's you don't have to go look around manually through all these different interfaces or whatever. It's just one place. Delete Bob and you're done. Yeah, in the past I've had like the HR approved spreadsheets, you know, with the onboarding and offboarding checklist and. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's been like its own project in your project management system and, and different things like that. And even some of the tools, like if you use enterprise level tools like Okta, where you do single sign on and stuff, I mean, that's still a, that's a single place to manage it from. But one of the gaps that it still leaves is, okay, let's open up Okta right now. How do we know that everyone who's set up here is actually supposed to have this level of access. Mm-hmm. And I think oh, that's I one of the that. key. Yeah, I think that's one of the I, key I, things I'm trying to address here by putting this into a GitOps style workflow. Yeah. I mean, I've, I can't count the number of times I've, I've been in a new system, you know, maybe I onboard or, or whatever. And, you know, I'm, I'm in management roles now, so I kind of have the responsibility to make sure that things aren't going crazy. And I get into, say, my GitHub account and I see there's 50 people there. And I only know half the names and I don't know, like, <laughs> is this somebody who used to work here or are they a contractor or is this a bot account? You know, you, you don't know sometimes and it's so infuriating. You know, you don't know if there's somebody's hacked their way into your system or if it's legitimate. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that just opens up a whole can of worms. Like, how do we how do we manage this? How do we deal with it? So aside from putting it into Terraform or, or something similar, so some sort of uh, infrastructure as code or accounts as code, are there other approaches you have used uh, or, or would use to, to help mitigate some of these concerns and make it uh, make lives easier? Yeah, just off the top of my head, you know, I'm using Terraform, but mainly because that's just the tool of choice where I'm at. You could also use Ansible or Puppet or Chef. Does anyone actually use Chef anymore? Uh, the Muppets do, I think. Right? <laughs> yeah, like any of the infrastructure as code tools, I think, would work. And then I think there are tools for managing this, like 
Okta that we've already mentioned. And AWS has AWS organizations and SSO. But even those two specifically, while they, while you can add someone to it and assign their, their access based on group membership, there's still, it still leaves the gap of when you open the console, how do you know that everyone there is supposed, has the access they're supposed to have? And I think that's the part that I keep coming back to, which is putting me back to Terraform, because then you can look at it and say, you can just run Terraform and Terraform is going to say, yeah, everything matches what I'm told it should be. Or no, this account has access to a group membership that I don't know about. Yeah. The code tool, infrastructure's code tool is a lot less important than the concept, right? I'm curious what you think about the idea, like where would you store this metadata about a user? Uh, Should that live in comments in your Terraform file? Uh, to just say, you know, this is the bot user created for this this thing, or this is uh, this is Bob, who's a temporary contractor who joined for six months, and you can delete his account when he when he leaves. You know, th- those sorts of things. So you don't have this situation where like who who is Bob and why does he have an account? But where would you put that sort of data? Yeah, I'm I'm currently putting it in the Terraform file for that specific resource. Almost every Terraform resource has a description field, and I'm trying to leverage that for a couple reasons. You can obviously. Just put a comment in the file, but I've found that using the description field, a lot of Terraform resources will map that over to the place where they're building it. So if you create a user in an AWS user in Terraform and you set the description field, then it, whenever it builds that AWS resource, it actually populates the description field there as well. So you've got this description that travels with the user wherever you happen to be looking at them from. Yeah, that's good. And then the other side of that is commit messages, I think are really handy. And also your whenever you create a new branch in your Git repo, both of those, I reference the ticket because ideally you shouldn't be making changes to any user's account or creating and deleting user accounts without a ticket from your ticketing system referencing why you're doing that work. And so in my commit message and when I create the Git branch to reflect that work, I'll both, I'll include the ticket ID in um, in both of those. And then if you have your ticketing system integrated with your, your GitHub organization, you can use keywords like closes ticket number one, two, three, and whenever that PR gets merged into the main branch, it'll automatically resolve that ticket for you right. in the ticketing system. So you get some like little nice features that help incentivize you to follow that pattern as well. Mm-hmm. And then is your Terraform script, is it automatically applied uh, on every commit or is that handled manually? So we're using Terraform Cloud. And so whenever you merge to main, you open your pull request, it will run a Terraform plan to show you the resource changes that it's going to make. Mm-hmm. And then if that looks right, you can merge that in. And then that will queue up the execution over in Terraform Cloud. So right now, you still have to go over to Terraform Cloud and apply the changes from there. Okay. But I have seen, I've actually got some personal repos integrated with Terraform where when you merge that pull request in through GitHub, you can actually apply it from GitHub itself. And we don't have that set up yet. I believe to set that up, you have to have the Terraform app installed in your GitHub organization. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. which we may not have done over here. But that's the same thing. You still have to manually apply the change, but it does save you a step from having to go over to Terraform Cloud mm-hmm. and apply it. You can just do it right from the pull request screen. We had a tool, I don't remember the name of it, that did that for uh, GitLab, the same company I was mentioning before. I've always found it a little bit, I mean, I, I kind of understand the reason, but it's a little bit annoying that you can't just trust your CI pipeline to automatically validate and deploy things for you, that, that there's still a manual step there. Anyway, the, the reason is because you can actually quite easily make a mistake that like, oh, let's delete the Kubernetes cluster. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and it, it's automatically deployed. You know, it's, it's a valid Terraform file. So it doesn't like screw up the linters, but then, oh, whoops, Kubernetes is gone. All of our customers are gone. (laughs) Yeah, it was totally valid. It was 368 delete operations, but they were all 100% valid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I'm sure, I'm sure that we'll have better tooling and, and, you know, some of it probably already exists to to automate some of that, you know, make sure that, you know, only certain types of changes uh, are permitted to happen automatically. But, uh, but that's one thing I've seen that I've, I've yet to see. Not that, my, not that my experience is super extensive, but I've yet to see a completely automated Terraform deployment anywhere. They probably exist, but I, I've not seen them yet for, for, for these reasons. Yeah, I know over in Terraform Cloud, you can, in, there's like a checkbox to enable that says, just go ahead and apply when you merge to main. And we don't have that checked, but I'm assuming if you do check it, then it's going to do just that. Which, you know, at a high level, I think that's probably fairly safe to turn on because we run the Terraform plan when the pull request is opened. Mm-hmm. So whoever approves the PR has visibility into what Terraform thinks its next steps are going to be. Right. I, th- I think the problem, though, is that sometimes that plan, if you're, especially, you know, sometimes those plans are not easy to, they're, they're easy to miss details. Uh, yeah. You might actually, you know, if you accidentally rename a bucket or something, or, you know, sometimes it's not obvious that you're deleting one and, and creating a new one, you know, especially if you do several changes at once. So I think that's part of the problem for small changes. And if you're limiting yourself to say, maybe you have a, a specific Terraform directory that's only for user permissions, maybe you trust that one all the time. I mean, it, even if you met something up and deleted a user, it's pretty easy to usually, it's usually pretty easy to recreate it or, or re-add permissions or something like that. You're not going to make permanently destructive changes like deleting a database or something like that. So Yeah, for sure. I, I think that falls into the, like a more of an organizational best practices and how do you mm-hmm. build your repos? What's the scope of responsibility for a repo? And then just as far as like best practices in our team, you know, we've agreed that we're going to do small incremental commits and try to refrain from those big monster commits that change hundreds or thousands of lines of code in a single commit. Although sometimes, you know, sometimes a one line change can have a 500 line uh, plan change though. Yeah. And that's where it's complicated with, uh, with, with Terraform. Yeah. Agreed. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just, I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, Check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. 
and we'll just uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question, and then we'll just ro- rotate people through. So we'll we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half, and then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on Gather Town, and so after the the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. So when you're creating these users, I'm curious, do you always use groups or do you sometimes assign users a specific uh, permission directly? What's your philosophy on that? I lean towards always groups. And the reason is because I've been burned so many times of like, oh, this one person just needs this one thing. But then someone else starts helping them. And then someone else starts helping them. And like there's this scope creep that goes along. And over time, you end up juggling these permissions across multiple user accounts or they get different permissions because it's not all consolidated in one place. So it seems a little excessive at first, but even if I'm going to make a change for one person, I will either do so by modifying an existing group or create a new group to address that need. And then the the policies and the roles and the permissions are applied to the group, not to the user. I prefer the group approach as well. Uh, for for all those reasons um, and others, like even, even aside from infrastructure as code, somebody left the company I w- I'm working for a couple months ago, and I had to go remove their GitHub account. But of course, I'm not deleting their GitHub account because they have their own GitHub account. <laughs> right, right. So I had to literally go through every project in our group and see if he had direct personal access to anything, and he did on several things because he, you know, he wasn't just given group access. So especially for public services, like like if you're using Jira's cloud or or uh, GitHub or something like that. Not using groups is a is a recipe for disaster, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. What else can we talk about? I had another question I forgot about, but I'll try to remember it before we, we end. Well, while you remember it, I think it's a great opportunity to to encourage anyone listening. Like, how do you manage group permissions? Or if you could change them, what would you do differently? And we have our new Reddit group to handle discussions. So there is a Reddit forum called, oddly enough, Adventures in DevOps. So if you're a Reddit user, you can head over there, you can leave your comments, ask questions, and um, then the most upvoted questions will batch those up and actually answer those on an upcoming Q&A episode. So Reddit Adventures in DevOps, that's the right show name. And if if you're not a Reddit user, now's your chance to become one. It's free. It is free. It is free. Absolutely. And um, it's actually pretty useful. I mean, I, I I tend to get a lot of good information off of Reddit. You know, when I'm feeling too good about myself, I like to go post on there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I've had a good day on Twitter and I, and I need to do a reality check. <laughs> there was a meme a while back. Someone said, yeah, 
I post questions on Reddit, but then immediately log in as my other Reddit account and post an answer that is just absolutely horribly wrong because no one will take the time to answer a question, but everyone will jump on to tell you how wrong your answer is. Exactly. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's actually pretty brilliant. <laughs> so I didn't remember my other question. And that was, how do you see single sign-on fitting into all of this, this question of user management? So I think single sign-on is, we use it over at Polygon. I think it's the tool, you know, there's two parts to this. Um, there's author- authentication and authorization. I think single sign-on solves the authentication part of who you are. Mm-hmm. And then we use the the Terraform infrastructure as code for the authorization thing. Okay, we know who you are, but here's what you can and can't do. Mm-hmm. And and single sign-on is is great just because you've got all these different systems. You know, most everyone uses Google Suite or G Suite for your email, and then you have AWS access and Cloudflare access and all these, you know, Datadog access, all these different third party providers, which results in a bunch of different user accounts, or you just do the SSO integration and handle it from one place. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Of course, I mean, so if you have your single sign-on tied to your company account, that's great because then when you leave the company or whatever, just delete that account or disable the account and then all your company access is disabled. Uh, If you're using a public services like GitHub, it's a little more complicated, but still single sign-on, I think, is is a good... Uh, simplification step. Uh, so you don't have to, I mean, just like you were talking about your onboarding and offboarding checklists, who wants to go through the 30 apps that your company has accounts on and make sure that Bob doesn't still have an account on Sentry.io and on, on Atlassian and at GitHub and at, you know, all the other different places. Just, just, it's just nonsense to have to do that if you don't have to. Yeah, even tracking, like, what apps do we have? Yeah. Uh, some, some places that's a challenge. Especially whenever you look at like a higher level company perspective, because in software engineering, okay, we probably know most of the tools that we're using, but then you bring in like marketing and finance and all of those teams and it just becomes unmanageable within a matter of minutes. Definitely. The one thing that um, has come up recently specific to GitHub, because almost everyone brings their own GitHub user account to their their job there was a discussion about well should we have people create a new github user account specific for our company and we ended up not doing that because like your github profile is almost more important than your resume these days mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know so it was it was crippling to the future careers of people to mandate that they set up a new GitHub account or that we set up a new GitHub user for them and and granted them access to it. Yeah, I think I would, if somebody asked me to create a a new GitHub account, I would, I would be very, I mean, I don't know if I would refuse to, but I'd be like, that's, that's strange. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll add add my new company email to my existing GitHub account, no problem. And I'll set up my email preferences so that the stuff for for that group goes to my work email and my private stuff goes to my private email, but a separate account entirely. I don't know that I wouldn't be excited about it for sure. Yeah, definitely. Totally agree with that. Anything else we should talk about with user management? Probably. probably Oh, you know what else I wanted to touch on? Yeah. The thing that really grinds my gears. (laughs) (laughs) 2FA. I'm, I am just anti 
current 2FA patterns. Like so many authentication services are saying, hey, here's 2FA and you need to use Google Authenticator or we'll just text you a code to your SMS. And I'm not a big fan of that. I would rather the Authenticator app than the text. Although, yeah. My authenticator app's getting pretty darn full, and I have to scroll a bit to find the right one, and that's annoying. Yeah, I I wish everybody would just use Google Sign On, and if Google wants to do two FA, that's fine as long as it's one two FA, you know, one one uh, authenticator account. I just always use the same one. That would be nice. Yeah, I uh, I'm I'm totally against calling SMS messages two FA, especially if we're talking about if I can log into your service from my cell phone and you text the code to my cell phone, that's not 2FA. That's not two factors. That's all just different apps on the same factor. And then the other one is if you're offering 2FA, but you don't support things like my YubiKey here, I have to use the Authenticator app. That that really grinds my gears. I've I've never tried the YubiKey. (laughs) I, I actually had one from a previous employer. I didn't know what it did. And I threw it away. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I told a, I told a colleague or a friend, like, yeah, I had this this YubiKey. I don't know. I threw it away. He's like, what? You threw it away? That's worth. I don't remember it. With it. You know, what are the costs now? They're they're like a hundred bucks or something. I okay, think. Okay. Yeah. It was more than that. This this was like ten or fifteen years ago. So yeah, there were a lot more than that. And right. So like, yeah. Sure. What? <laughs> Well, it looked like a broken piece of plastic off of something. Yeah, I like, couldn't find where I, it went. I couldn't store MP3s on it. What can I do with it? <laughs> For real, yeah. No, I'm a I'm a big fan of the the YubiKey because, like you mentioned, my Authenticator app. I have to scroll for days to find the the one. Plus, I don't really consider it to be a second factor because it's on the same factor that I'm trying to log into sometimes and. It's just easier. Like I just plug this in or some of the newer YubiKeys do uh, NFC, near field communication. So you just hold it close to the device and you can, at that point, you can steal my laptop. You can steal my phone. You can crack my password. You can crack the the face recognition or whatever's installed on my phone. But until you get this physical key from me, I still feel like I have a little bit of control over the situation. How do you feel about the the passwordless authentication? Oh, you know, basically a website says, "Hi, what, welcome. Click here to and we'll send you a, a login token that's good for ten minutes." Yeah, I'm kind of on the same fence as the SMS code. Like, I understand what they're doing. Managing passwords is hard. Everyone does it poorly. But I, I don't know. Like in the event of a compromised device, I don't know that that counts as security Mm -hmm. because almost everyone, like if I have access to your phone, I've probably got access to your email too. Probably. Yeah. And I mean, there's some gray area there because like the, the authenticator app I use is Authy and it does facial recognition. So you would have to get my phone from me, then unlock my phone, then launch the Authy app and then hold it in front of my face. So, I mean, there's some layers there, but to me, it just, it feels like those layers are are pretty thin and flexible. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, many years ago, I was working on an app where we had to manage some of this stuff. You know, like basically we were doing email quarantine for, for people and we would like daily or weekly send a report, you know, here's the six messages that got caught in quarantine. They're probably spam or, or phishing, but if you, if one of them is legitimate, you can click here and log in and, and, and we were sending these to users who didn't have passwords on our account, on our system. 
you know, basically their, their administrator would set up an account and then all 500 people at the company are there. And, and we're not going to, we're not, we didn't want to connect to the LDAP or whatever and ask for their clear text passwords. That's not, not safe. Seems not even possible in many cases, fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what do we do? So we, we had to come up with some sort of like passwordless, uh, authentication so yeah it was it was it was email links you know each link had a or each each yeah each link in email had a they click on it and then they would be sent a new an email token that was good for 10 minutes or something that they could log in with um, which i think was probably the best we could do in that situation although in that case we were literally talking about email if somebody had compromised their email all it would give them access to was their email (laughs) (laughs) so you know it's it's not like we're locking into your bank here (laughs) yeah True, but but still, yeah. Sometimes it's it's hard to make those those calls. Yeah, all in all, it, it is a tough problem. And then you have to compare that with like the scope. You know, like what's the what's the potential downside of getting this wrong, and then right. make decisions accordingly. I think that's someplace where we struggle sometimes. Is and you know, this is such an important topic that a lot of people, especially if you haven't been in this industry for more than a few years, you probably haven't thought about a lot of this stuff. But this, and that's why security is so bad on the internet, because 50% of our workforce has less than five years of experience. And unless you have about 10 years of experience, you're not thinking about this stuff regularly, or, or you've literally you know, studied security. Most developers don't think about this until they're bitten by it, and, and, and that doesn't happen very often. So this is, this is difficult stuff. It's complicated. I mean, this is some of the hardest stuff, I mean, especially when you get down to like encryption, secure encryption and, st- and stuff like that. Some of the smartest people in the world are, are solving these problems. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a hard problem and people don't think about it. But if you do think about it, you you can at least start in the right direction. You know, what's the worst that could be compromised if uh, if we forget to delete Bob's account? Right. What's the worst you could do? And uh, yeah, th- think about those things. It'll, it'll make you a better engineer and a better, yeah, better employee. And while while on the topic of you know, what's the worst that Bob could do if he forgets to delete his account, if you're Bob, it's also important that people delete your accounts when you leave the company because you don't want to be the. I mean, I've had this happen a few times. You know, as soon as I discover after I've left a company, there, I, more than once I've discovered that I still had access to something I shouldn't. And as soon as I, and whenever that happens, I I contact the company immediately and tell them I still have access. Uh, you know, my, a company I left about eight years ago, six months later, I, I pull, powered on an old laptop and automatically logged into their instant message system. <laughs> now, I don't think I could have done anything nefarious on instant message. I could have spammed some former colleagues or something. But I immediately contacted them and said, hey, I still have access to this account. Please delete it. And then it happened again. The same company I talked about with GitLab. A few months later, I discovered I still had access to one of their GitLab repos. So I contacted them immediately. Please delete my access. Because I don't want to be on the hook. If they ever discover a breach... I don't want them thinking it was me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. E- even if you didn't do it, like exactly. the level of effort you would have to go through to prove that you didn't do it is not something that you want to spend your time and effort doing. Exactly. I mean, and, and you don't even want that phone call from the lawyer. <laughs> what were you doing on September 13 at 12 p.m. <laughs> when our server was hacked? You know, you don't want that call. <laughs> Which for me is a horrible question, no matter what the date is, because like I'm like I don't know what what's today's date, right? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, the point is you don't want that extra access either, and even if yeah. you're worried, even if you're still at the company, I mean, it's it's also a, a liability. I mean, uh, so you know, I've worked at places where somebody was given full administrator access to AWS, and that's dangerous. Like I don't want that access myself. Because I don't want to accidentally delete something, and I don't want to be accused of something if it does get deleted. You know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't intend to do anything wrong. I'm, it's not that I, I, 
excited to have extra access. Like, oh, I have vaccine backstage access now. You know, it's not it's not an exciting thing to have too much access if you're responsible. You want the minimum access so that you can't accidentally do something or be suspect if something accidentally happens. Yeah, I think a, a good way to summarize that is uh, one of the companies I worked at a few years ago, I was talking with our corporate attorney about data retention. And we agreed that the data retention was like, I think it was like three years or something. And I said, oh, well, we have like seven years of data. And he said, delete it. I said, why? It seems like more is better. And he said, no. He said, anything beyond the three years that we are required to keep becomes known as the defense exhibit A in a courtroom. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. Cool. Well, should we do some picks? Yeah. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and, and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, The rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. Well, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current and keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The The full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. All right. You got any ready? I do. I have a Let's hear it. So first, my wife and I have been watching The Rings of Power on Amazon, which is... Oh, I've heard good the, things about the that. prequel to The Lord of the Rings. It's about Galadriel and Elrond and basically how the rings were created and you know, sort of the backstory to the Lord of the Rings. So if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you'll enjoy this. Different actors, but the same characters and really the same sort of feel. You know, it, it feels like it's the same. It doesn't feel like some cheesy knockoff or something. So right on. Uh, that's my first pick. My second pick is a book I just finished reading by James Carse, C-A-R-S-E. It's called Finite and Infinite Games. Now, some of you listening may be more familiar with Simon Sinek's take on this concept, the infinite game. And he has a talk on you can find on YouTube about the same topic, but I can't stand that bastard. So <laughs> read his book. <laughs> I 
I went to the original source. So James Karst is the one who came up with the concept, and, and Simon Sinek, uh, I don't want to say plagiarized, because I'm sure he didn't, but you know, he, he took the concept and, and sort of made it his, gave it its own twist. But the concept is, is, you know, finite games are games that have rules, like like baseball or, or, or poker or something, right? You know, mm-hmm. And there's a winner at the end. And the purpose of the game is to win. And then there are infinite games where the purpose of the game is to keep playing. And, you know, you, you might think of like open world games like uh, Skyrim or something, but that's not it. Skyrim is still an, a finite game. I mean, it, it's, it's not, it doesn't perfectly fit the definition of finite in the terms of the, of the book, but there's still, within the game, there's still goals and, you know, you, maybe you don't win the game, but a tr- the truly infinite game is, is, I mean, life, basically, you know? And, you know, so he really goes, it's, it's sort of a philosophical book and sort of a, yeah, I don't know. That's probably the best way to describe it. Talks about how this applies to business, to to life, to family life, to sexuality, to war, to slavery. So he goes he goes into all sorts of topics. It's a little bit of a um, I don't want to say dense read, but like it's it's deep. So it's something you need. You, you don't just listen to it lightly. On you know, if you really want to get the most out of it, you're gonna either li- I listen to it, uh, but you can read it. You really want to you want the time to think about what you're you're reading. So I do recommend it. Finite and Infinite Games by James Cars. Nice, interesting look on on life. Right on. Cool. I like that. We should post that over on the Reddit forum, see if anyone else has read it. Sure. For my picks, I've got two as well. The first one, I'm going to pick Asana, the project management system, asana.com. And so I've used, I think I've used every project management system ever made and never really been successful with any of them. And I may not be successful with Asana, but I'm pretty positive at this point, a couple weeks into it. So one of the cool things that they have that I really like is this workflow builder that allows you to say, when this thing happens, create these tasks or close these tasks or move this task to this stage or whatever, which is pretty common in other project management tools. But this one just feels pretty intuitive and just give you a specific example, creating videos for my YouTube channel, hashtag shameless self-promotion DevOps for developers is a pretty labor intensive process. You know, I come up with the idea, then I script out the video, then I record it, then it goes over to the editor who edits it. And then I check the edits and then create the description that goes up on YouTube and break it apart into shorts to do YouTube shorts and Twitter and Instagram and all the different social media posts that go around that. And then I try to do, I've been trying to add it to my website as well as a text-based version, but all of these different steps, whatever, I have a hard time tracking those. So I built it out into one workflow in Asana. So the minute I drag it from an idea over to scripting, it starts this workflow. And whenever I mark the scripting is complete, it triggers the next task. And then whenever it's ready for edit, um, it goes to the edit status automatically, and that sends a notification to my editor with a link to Dropbox where the raw files are. And so it's it's been pretty cool. So if you're looking for a project management tool, check out Asana. I've been pretty happy with it. And then my other pick for the day, Jonathan, you get to see it. Listeners of the podcast, you don't get to see it, but I will describe it well. This is my Bear Max massage gun. And this thing, I, I'm not going to lie. If my house were on fire and I had to choose between rescuing this and my wife, I'm not sure I would make the right decision. Wow. This thing is great. 
So I signed up for a 100K run that I'm going to do in February. So I've amped up the number of miles I'm running each week. And this thing is just so cool. It's just a little massage gun, but you just put it on the muscle and set it at the speed that you want it. And yeah, it's it's really nice. Wow. Uh, when you showed that to me, I was about to say, this This is supposed to be a family-friendly show, Will. I don't know if you can talk about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Like, but it's just a massage God, gun, guys. It's all right. Oh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's horrible. I mean, it's funny, but it's horrible. <laughs> all right. Cool. Yeah. So on that note. I have already posted the book on the new Reddit group. So by the time you hear this episode, it's there. Don't be late. Don't miss out. This is your FOMO moment. Go check out the new Reddit group and comment about whatever you think is cool about adventures and devops yeah for sure because it's one topic that keeps coming up over and over in the parts of this podcast that y'all don't hear is we're curious about what y'all think what your what's on your mind and want to engage with you more to make this closer to a two-way conversation so we're trying out the reddit group to see if that works so give it a shot and And if you hate reddit go to reddit and tell us about it and maybe we'll consider changing to something else yeah absolutely that's the cool thing about Reddit is you can upvote and downvote. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> Great. Well, it's been an adventure. It has. Look forward to next week. All right. We'll see you. Cheers. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.